Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. That's michael at C-O-C-O-R-I-S dot com. Now, let's hear from Mike. An elderly white-haired gentleman reached his hand into his pocket and pulled from it a piece of candy wrapped in cellophane. He then held it out to a little boy said, Here, this is for you. The little boy immediately began to unwrap piece of candy and stick the prize in his mouth. But before he could complete the task, his mother, who was overseeing the whole thing, looked at the little boy and said, and what do you say? And the little boy looked up at the elderly gentleman and said, oh, thank you. An elderly lady was uh, driving her automobile down a fairly deserted portion of the highway when she had a flat tire. No sooner did she get out to look over the situation than a younger fella pulled up in a pickup truck parked in front of her and offered to put on the spare tire. Just as he was completing the task, she looked at him and said, what do I owe you? Now, we would all say that a little boy saying thank you to an older man for a piece of candy, and the older lady saying, what do I owe you to a good Samaritan, is an appropriate response for a kindness done. What I would like to ask you is, what is the response for the ultimate kindness? God has been kind toward us. He has been loving and merciful. What is the appropriate response to that kindness? The book that answers that question is Romans chapter 12. Turn with me to that passage, will you? Romans chapter 12. And let's begin with verse 1 where Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them, if prophecy Let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. To really understand what's going on in these eight verses of Romans chapter 12, you actually need to understand what is going on in the book of Romans. As everyone who studies this book knows, when you come to chapter 12, you are entering another major section of this book. We are at this intersection turning a corner, so to speak. So in order to understand this passage, I'd like to begin by backing up and just reviewing for a second what the book of Romans is about. I have suggested that the subject of Romans is righteousness. 
Beginning at chapter 1, verse 18, and going through chapter 3, verse 21, Paul argues that all men have sinned and need righteousness. Then, from 3.22 to the end of chapter 4, he informs us that God has provided this righteousness in Jesus Christ. He tells us at the beginning of chapter 5 that God did that because he loved us. God commended his love toward us, Paul says, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Also, in chapter 5, he tells us that this justification was to life. That's in 5.18. And that becomes the, the point of departure for the next section of Romans. For in chapters 6, 7, and 8, he talks about this life that we now have in Jesus Christ. It is a newness of life. It is a life in the Spirit. He concludes that section by assuring us that nothing will separate us from the love of God. So that in those first eight chapters, we're being told that we need righteousness, that righteousness has been provided when we trust in Jesus Christ, and that righteousness can literally be produced in our lives as we walk in the Spirit. But then, if he claims that nothing can separate us from the love of God, there is immediately a problem. It's what about the fact that God chose the nation Israel and they seem to have been rejected, at least they have departed from him. Well, that prompts Paul, beginning in chapter 9 through chapter 11, to discuss the whole problem of the nation of Israel. In that passage, he is vindicating God's righteousness. God has not cast away his people, Paul argues, but rather he has chosen a remnant out of them. The rest have chosen to reject him. And besides, God is going to save them all ultimately. When he comes down to the end of chapter 11, he says this. Look at Romans chapter 11, verse 30. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience. Now there are two things you have to note here. One is they, meaning in context the Jews, were disobedient. And Paul argues in Romans 11 that God showed mercy to the Gentiles because of the disobedience of the Jews. The second thing you need to note is this. We were disobedient. Prior coming to Christ, we had disobeyed God. We weren't some kind of prize. We weren't necessarily some choice, chosen ones that uh, became God's children. No. We were disobedient too. And yet, God showed mercy to us. And we, through their disobedience and in spite of our own disobedience, came to know Jesus Christ as our Savior. Now, you have to understand the whole thrust of the book of Romans. In chapter 1, he argued that we needed righteousness for the very fact that we were so disobedient. And God, by His grace and His love and His mercy, has provided that righteousness and by the work of his spirit has produced that righteousness in our lives i submit to you that what god has done for us through his son and through his holy spirit is the ultimate kindness toward us now what is an appropriate response if an older man had given you as a boy or a girl a piece of candy you'd say thanks Someone stopped to help you fix a flat. You'd offer to pay. What? What is the appropriate response to the ultimate kindness? God saving us from our sin, saving us from our wrath, His wrath, 
declaring us righteous and working in our lives. What, I ask, is the, is the proper response to that? And I would suggest that the first verses of Romans 12, namely verses 1 through 8, answer that question. As I understand these verses, Paul is telling us that there are three things that you can do that would be an appropriate response to what God has done for you. Let's look at them. The first is in verse 1. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The first thing he asks you to do is present your body a living sacrifice. Notice that this is clearly plugged in to what's gone before. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Now, there's a bit of a discussion as to what this little therefore is related to. Some want to relate it to what has just been said in chapter 11. Others want to push it back a little further and relate it to all that's been said in 9 through 11. And still others want to push it all the way back to the beginning of the body of the book in 118. Frankly, I think all of that boils down to about the same thing. Because at the end of chapter 11, what he has said is that God has been merciful to us. As a matter of fact, throughout 9 through 11, what he has repeatedly argued, matter of fact, one of the major points of those three chapters is that God has not cast away his people and because of God's program involving his people Israel, he has been merciful to us. And clearly, if you push it all the way back to 118, the point is that we were, to use Paul's words in another book, dead in trespasses and sins, and by his grace and mercy, he has saved us. So, this is connected to everything that's gone before, and the essence of what has gone before is that God has been very gracious and merciful to us. So, therefore, let me tell you how you ought to respond. He says in verse 1, you ought to present your bodies a sacrifice, a living sacrifice. Now, what does he mean by present your bodies? This is very important. The word translated present in Romans 12.1 has been used before in the book of Romans, and it is very important that you notice this. In Romans chapter 6, he used that same word in verse 13, in verse 16, and in verse 19. In verse 13, he says, Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Verse 16, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slave to whom you obey, whether of sin to death or of obedience to righteousness. And again, he does the same in verse 19. The point is this. In Romans chapter 6, he talks about presenting your body either to sin, to obey it, or to righteousness, to obey it. Now, it is unmistakable, as you are reading Romans, that he uses that word three times in chapter 6, and he is summing up, in a sense, what he said in the opening verses of chapter 12. So that, when he says, present your bodies, he has in mind what he has taught in chapter 6. And what he has taught in chapter 6 is simply this. We are to obey through our bodies. Or to say the same thing another way, to present your body is to use your body to obey God. That's the point of this verse. I don't know how many times I've heard messages on this verse, <clears throat> and they wanted to preach on um, dedication. As a matter of fact, I confess to you that as a young man speaking to teenagers, I used this verse to teach that they ought to dedicate themselves to the Lord in one single act, as in a dedication service. Now, while that may have value and perhaps even validity, 
That is not exactly what this verse is saying. What this verse is saying is that you are presenting your body not just in one act as in a marriage ceremony, but in a whole series of acts for the rest of your life in acts of obedience to righteousness. So the appropriate response for what God has done for us is that we present our bodies to him, meaning we obey him with our bodies. Now that's called a sacrifice. And obviously Paul is using imagery that he gained from the Old Testament, where, as you will recall, they would take an animal, they would slay it, and then offer it on an altar. And the fire would consume it. And as the fire consumed it, it was a sacrifice. So, he says, we are to present our bodies in acts of obedience like those sacrifices were presented to the altar in the Old Testament. Then he adds, this is a living sacrifice. It is a holy sacrifice. It is an acceptable sacrifice. And it is your reasonable service. The sacrifice in the Old Testament was dead. Our obedience is a living sacrifice. Now, it's very possible that he means living versus dead, uh, physically living versus physically dead. But I think it's also possible that he has something slightly different in mind, spiritually alive. Remember in chapter 6, verse 13, he says, do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as alive from the dead. We have been raised to walk in a new kind of life. And so we are to present ourselves a living sacrifice. We are spiritually alive. Furthermore, he says this is holy, this sacrifice as the sacrifices in the Old Testament, are set apart to the Lord, and they are very acceptable to Him. In other words, this kind of a sacrifice is pleasing to Him. That's the idea. And it's reasonable. Now, some people want to make this your reasonable worship, but I think he's saying it's your reasonable service, that this is the way you ought to respond because of what He's done to you. And it is the rational, reasonable thing to do. As a matter of fact, the Greek word that is translated reasonable in verse 2 is the word from which we get our word logic. So he is saying the rational, reasonable, intelligent, logical thing to do is serve the Lord with your body by obeying Him. So, God has been merciful. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, because God has been merciful, that you present your body in acts of obedience to righteousness unto Him. Let me illustrate. Donald Gray Barnhouse, that great Presbyterian pastor of another day, told once of uh, taking a trip with his wife, and at this part of the trip she was driving. And this was before the days of freeways, and they'd come into a town, and you know how they used to reduce, they still do, I guess, if you're not on the freeway, they reduced the speed limit from, what, 65 or 55 to 45 to 35 to 25 to, here in a school zone, 15. And she was meticulously holding to write exactly what the speed limit said. As a matter of fact, he caught her in a school zone doing 15 miles an hour. So he commended her. And she said to him, Well, in light of all that the Lord has done for me, I decided that I should serve the Lord with my accelerator foot. Now that is a picture of presenting your body a living sacrifice. 
as you use your body in an act of obedience, you are presenting it as a living, holy, pleasing, reasonable sacrifice to him. That's, that would be a very appropriate response for what he's done for you. Amen? All right, there's more. Look at verse 2. The second thing he says is, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The second thing he says we ought to do, based on the fact that he's been so merciful to us, is we ought to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Now this is first stated negatively, and then it's stated positively. Negatively he says, do not be conformed to this world. Actually, the word translated world should be more accurately translated age. These are words that are similar in meaning in the New Testament, but they're also slightly different. World, not the word used here, means that system that leaves God out. Satan is the God of this world, and Satan's intent is to leave God out and rule the world without him. Age is the current spirit of the world. Uh, it's almost as if uh, the idea is that uh, the world is always leaving God out, but there are different forms of it down through the ages. And what Paul is saying in this verse is, do not be conformed to the present form of the world called the age. And as you know, one of the well-known, most well-known paraphrases of this comes from Phillips, who says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, which captures what Paul is saying. Don't be conformed. Don't let the world press you or squeeze you into its mold so that you come out looking like it. In an automobile plant, they take these huge sheets of metal, they stick them in a machine, and this big machine comes down on this piece of metal, then it releases the pressure, and that flat piece of metal comes popping out in the form of a fender. Now that's conformity. And Paul says, don't be conformed to that image of the world. Don't let the world pressure you or squeeze you into its form. Now, what's the form of the world? If you're going to be conformed to the world, what would you come out looking like? If I were going to choose one thing to say, I think I would use the word meism. That the spirit of the age, the spirit of the world, is on the one hand to leave God out. But what happens when you leave God out? What happens is you want everything to revolve around you. Now, there are different forms of that. One form could be, for example, materialism. And uh, that could pass off the teen, and you could become hedonistic. But narcissism, the idea we're going to live for just me, is always the spirit of the world in whatever form it chooses to take at the moment. So Paul says, don't be conformed to the world, but conversely, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Ah, this is the essence of the second thing he's telling us. A proper response based on the fact that God has been so merciful to us is that we be transformed from the inside out so that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. Now again, I think this uh, goes back to chapter 8. As verse 1 went back to chapter 6, verse 2 goes back to chapter 8, verse 4, where he talks about, uh, in Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 2, excuse me, the law of the spirit of life in Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. Keep reading. Um, verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So now he's telling us, 
that we are to have our minds renewed. And I take it that this is a reference to Romans chapter 8, where we have the renewed mind by the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. And I think what we want to know is how do you get that? What do you do? Well, he doesn't tell us that in Romans chapter 12, but I want to share with you the one other passage in all of the New Testament where he talks about being transformed. Look at 2 Corinthians 3, 18. 2 Corinthians 3.18 Paul says this, While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are... I'm sorry, I'm in chapter 4, verse 18. I thought something was wrong. Let's go back to chapter 3, verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now let me explain. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, is saying that we're going to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. The only other place he uses this word transformed is in 2 Corinthians 3, 18. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, he's giving us a little more of the process. And the process is this. As we behold the Lord, we are transformed into the same image from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord. So in Romans 12.2, he's saying, don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And clearly, the renewing of the mind comes about as we behold the Lord in the Word of God. And the Spirit of God transforms our behavior from the inside out. A word, by the way, translated transformed is the word from which we get our English word metamorphosis. So that uh, as the uh, caterpillar in the cocoon is transformed into a butterfly, so we, as we're exposed to the Word of God, and more specifically to the person of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit conforms us into His image, and we are transformed from the inside out. Now, let's go back to Romans 12, 2 for just a second, because he says in this verse that as you are transformed by the renewing of your mind, you will prove that is, you will demonstrate in your life, you will show in your behavior what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That is, as you are meditating in the Word of God, as you are beholding Jesus Christ, as you are beginning to think God's thoughts after Him, and your life is beginning to change, that will demonstrate the will of God in your life. And that will is good. That will is acceptable, it's pleasing to God, and it's perfect. I think this verse, like verse 1, has been often misapplied. Some come to this verse to suggest there's a perfect will of God and an imperfect will of God. Actually, the word perfect here really means complete. The Greek word means to bring to its end. And the idea is that uh, as you are transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you are doing the will of God, and that will of God will be complete. But here's what I want you to see. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, based on the fact that God has been merciful to us, there are two things we ought to do. Number one, we ought to present our bodies as living sacrifices. And number two, we ought to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And I submit to you that both of these things are really related to chapters 6 through 8. That the presentation of your body is acts of obedience and the renewing of your mind is the renewing of the mind of the Spirit of God. So to turn this around just a bit, it all begins with the renewing of my mind as I am exposed to the Word of God and to the person of Christ in particular in the Word of God. I change the way I think about things. 
and that changes my life. And ultimately, I then begin to act like God wants me to act. So that what these verses are saying is that the appropriate response is that I give myself to the Lord. I use my mind to think his thoughts, and I use my body to do his will. That's the appropriate response. As I think like God thinks, I begin to act like God wants me to act. I am then doing his will, which is acceptable and pleasing to him. Now, frankly, all that's great, but I have some questions. What are the specifics? Give me some specific things about the way I ought to think differently than I used to think. He's just talked about the will of God. What specifically is the will of God? If I went through this process, what would happen? And particularly, how, do I, how does the changing of my mind, the renewing of my mind, affect me? Well, I'm going to suggest that verses 3 to 8 tell us that. Look at verse 3. In Romans chapter 12, verse 3, he says, For, notice this is clearly related to what's just been said. He starts with the word for. I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Now, I'm going to suggest that verses 3 to 8 are telling us a third response. It's related to the second, but it's different. And the third response is this. We are to think soberly of ourselves using the gift that God has given us in the body of Christ. That's the sum of verses 3 to 8. Now, let me just very simply and quickly show you what I mean. He has just said in verse 2, we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. Now he says in verse 3, let me get a little more specific. I mean, and he says by the grace given to me, he means as an apostle, I say to everyone among you, he means to the people at Rome, not to think. Now it's inescapable because of the 4 in verse 3 and the fact that he says think, and he's just talked about renewing your mind, that these things are connected. As I am exposed to the Word of God and the person of Christ in the Word of God, I begin to think differently. And one of the major things that will be affected is the way I think about myself. And Paul urges us to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but to think soberly, in other words, realistically. As God has dealt to everyone a measure of faith, and he will immediately go to apply that to our spiritual gift. But before we get to that, let me just pause here long enough to say that if you're having your mind renewed, it'll affect the way you think about yourself. You will not be overly proud or haughty or ambitious concerning your spiritual gift, but you will be very sober. You will think of yourself in terms of your position in the body of Christ and you won't be ambitious to be anything other than what God has made you. That's the point. Look at verse 4. For, he's further going to explain, as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individual individually members one of another. He says, let me use the human body as an illustration. The human body has many parts. I have uh, legs and feet and toes and arms and hands and fingers and a body with a heart and lungs and a liver. And I have a head with eyes and ears, a nose, a mouth, a head with hair, hopefully, uh, ears, whatever. And each one of those members fit in this body, and it is all a unit, but each member has a different function. As I speak to you, my finger points, my arm waves, my legs move, my lungs are pumping, my eyes look at you and look at the text, my mouth is going and my tongue is waggling, my mind's working, right? All of that is a unit producing one act, but many members. Now, 
Paul says, don't think of yourself more highly than you are. As he talks in uh, 1 Corinthians, when he talks, he uses the same illustration. Every part needs the other part. You can't do all this without all those parts. I couldn't do what I'm doing like I'm doing it if I didn't have all these parts and they weren't coordinated, right? So, so don't, 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 don't think that um, your foot is the most important. Don't, don't, don't try to be a hand. Just figure out what function you have in the body and, and get there and serve there. I'm going to tell you, if you're really growing spiritually and you're having your mind renewed, one of the first things that will happen is you'll think soberly about yourself. You'll figure out just exactly where you fit in the body of Christ and you'll get there and function there and be happy that you're there. And you won't necessarily want to do anything else to try to be on top of somebody else. You're just happy that you're right where God wants you to be. Make sense? Isn't that gorgeous? I mean, that, that's, our, that's our appropriate response. Lord, you've made me. You've put me uh, in the body of Christ. Now, now, you've given me this gift. I just want to be right where you want me to be. Just show me what my gift is and how I fit in the body and I'll function there and be delighted to do it. Problem is, we think of ourselves more highly than we ought, meaning we think we fit someplace we don't. At any rate, we think we're the greatest. Reminds me of the fellow who was given an award for his service in an organization and they used very eloquent language. They even exaggerated in a few spots and it gave him a little bit of a puffed head. And they gave him a plaque. But anyway, he went home and he was telling his mother about all of this. And he paused and said, just how many great men do you think there are in the world? And his mother said, one less than you think. <laughs> God wants us to think very realistically and soberly about ourselves. Now, what does that mean? As he explains in this passage, it means that he has given you a spiritual gift. And you need to figure out what that spiritual gift is, get there, and serve in that capacity in the body of Christ. Now, there are seven gifts that are mentioned, and we could spend all kinds of time on this, but we don't have it. But I'm going to just briefly run through these seven gifts and tell you what they are. Look at verse 6. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in the proportion of our faith. The first gift is prophecy. I believe that prophecy is the ability to receive direct revelation. And in another series, at another time, I have explained that I believe the gift of prophecy has ceased. At any rate, he says, if you had that gift, and at this point they, it was still being exercised, uh, you should do it according to the proportion of faith that God has given to you. Secondly, he says in verse 7, or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. Now the word ministry can be used in a general sense of all serving, but this word could also be used of serving the needy. And many... In studying this list, based on the other gifts, say this just isn't all serving. It would be almost inappropriate for the word all serving to appear in this list. But rather, this probably has reference to the ability to just serve needy people. That there is a gift for that. Next, he says in verse 7, he who teaches in teaching. Now, there's a difference between teaching and prophecy. A prophet gets a his revelation directly from God. A teacher has to study to get his gift, and then he, like the prophet, communicates it. Boy, I think I'd like to have the gift of prophet. You wouldn't have to study. Boy, that's got all kinds of appeal to me, all right? Uh, but anyway, the teacher, unlike the prophet, has to study, and then he communicates that gift and he imparts information, he informs, as well as explains and expounds. Then he says, verse 8, he who exhorts in exhortation, so that the exhorter is particularly gifted at 
encouraging people or exhorting them to be motivated to do what they already know. Now, these two gifts are uh, very distinct. Some have the ability to impart information. They have insight when they study the Word. They can systematize it. They can dispense it. And others come along and they just, as naturally as breathing, speak and start motivating you uh, to do what the teacher has taught you. Martin Luther had an interesting insight on these two. He said, teaching is directed toward the ignorant and exhortation toward those that know better. Interesting way to put it. Verse 8 says, he who gives with liberality. Some have the gift of giving. And liberality means to do it with simplicity and with sincerity. There should not be mixed motives when you give. There are people who give so they can manipulate or control. It ought to be done with liberality, which means in simplicity and sincerity. It's not quite the idea of giving generously. It's more the idea of giving without thinking you've got mixed motives and you've got to control the situation. He also says in verse 8, uh, he who leads with diligence. By the way, uh, leading, uh, the Greek word means to preside. It means that you're standing up and governing. Uh, it is used in 1 Timothy of he who governs well or rules well over his own house. It is used in several passages in 1 Timothy and 1 Thessalonians 5 of ruling in the church. This is, an, a, this is a gift of administration type of thing, a gift of leading. And you are to do it with diligence, meaning you're to go at it responsibly and earnestly. If that's your gift, then exercise it and do it with all diligence. And finally, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And again, the word mercy, many feel, is a particular kind of thing of visiting the sick. It is not just showing mercy. I've always thought it was anybody who had a tender heart and was merciful to everybody that came along. And that's not exactly what most feel this is about. But rather, this is about the ability of visiting the sick people. And if you do that, you're to do it with cheerfulness. You're to do it gladly and not with gloom. Now, let me say a couple of things and I'll wrap this up. One is, the point of this list is you're not to think of yourself more highly than you ought, but you're to think realistically and soberly of yourself, and I think that means that you need to find your spiritual gift and go be you. Now, I need to say that the Bible teaches that you can have a spiritual gift, but that spiritual gift needs to be stirred up right? So that you could have the gift of teaching, but you need to be taught how to teach. You could have the gift of giving and maybe need some instruction on how to give. You could have the gift of mercy and maybe need to take a course in how to visit the sick and so forth. So that, uh, but the point is, go be the best you you can be. I mean, that's the appropriate response of God showering his mercy upon you. Right? Just respond with, I'm going to serve you with the ability you gave me. He gave you the gift by his mercy. Then find out what it is and go serve him. That's what you ought to do. And you ought to think of yourself in that capacity, in the body of Christ, and go do that. Let me say a second thing. And that is, don't just do that. <laughs> I think that the other extreme is to... Um, think, well, I just have the gift of teaching, so that's all I have to do. No, 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 no. Virtually everything listed here, not all, but virtually all, is mentioned in another passage as a command that every Christian is supposed to do. Do only people who have the gift of giving, are they the only ones that are supposed to give? No. Are the only, are the only ones who are to exhort, are those who have the gift of exhortation, or does not the book of Hebrews say exhort one another daily and put that responsibility on all of us? See what I mean? So, I, I'm going to say two things. One is, find out what your spiritual gift is, stir it up, concentrate on it, and be you. And secondly, grow. But either one of those things is going to take a reassessment of your mental attitude as to who you are. You're a recipient of God's grace and mercy, 
And the appropriate response is to say, I want to think like you think. I want to act like you want me to act. And I want to serve you. But that's going to take some dedication. That's going to take some effort on your part. Michelangelo was probably the greatest sculptor who has ever lived. It was very apparent that he had the gift early in his life. When he was 14 years old, he started taking instructions from a man who had been a student of the greatest sculpturer of his time. Once this teacher came into the studio and uh, Michelangelo was playing with a piece of marble that was beneath his ability. The teacher picked up a hammer, stormed across the room, and beat the thing to pieces. And then he screamed something at Michelangelo that Michelangelo never forgot. He said, young man, talent is cheap. Dedication is costly. Now, God's given you a gift. Every one of us have a talent. It may be simply visiting sick people. That's great. We need that gift badly. It may just be ministering to needy people. It may be teaching. It may be exhortation. It may be giving. We really need that gift, folks. <laughs> okay? And we all need to visit the sick, and we all need to give, and we all need to teach our children, at least. But that's the appropriate response. That's what God wants us to do. And the way he gets us to do it is he showers his mercy upon us. He created us. He saved us. He gave us a spiritual gift. And the appropriate response to that is not just to say thank you. And it's not just to say how much do I owe you and tip him with an offering. And this is the point of this passage. The appropriate response to the mercy of God is for us to present our minds, our bodies, and our service to Him. May I repeat that? The appropriate response to the great mercy that God has shown to us is for us to give back to Him our minds, our bodies in acts of obedience and our service, the use of our spiritual gift. And this is called a sacrifice. Jesus Christ sacrificed himself for you. And the appropriate response is that you sacrifice yourself for him meaning you use your mind and your body and your time, your service for him. That, and only that, is an appropriate response to the great mercy of God. Some years ago now, I had a conversation with a teenage fellow. And what he said to me overwhelmed me. I wrote it down and I waited all these years until I could get to the book of Romans and this passage and tell this story. This passage is saying that you ought to give yourself as a sacrifice and that's reasonable. That's reasonable. Now let me tell you the story. I was speaking in a church some years ago. A member of that church was Bobby Richardson. How many of you ever heard of Bobby Richardson? Bobby Richardson was the famous second baseman of the New York Yankees. He has since uh, retired and become a coach at a Christian school. The days when I knew him, he was a coach at the University of South Carolina, and he had a very godly family. I got to know him rather well, fell in love with him and his whole family. One week when I was in his church, his teenage son took me to the airport. His name was Ron. On the way to the airport, Ron started telling me 
all that he was doing for the Lord. I don't even know how we got in the conversation. Let me tell you what it was. On Tuesday mornings, he got up and held a prayer meeting for teenagers in his home at 6.30. Every day, Monday to Friday, at 7.45 in the morning, he was at school conducting something he called prime time. Every week on Thursday nights, this is a senior in high school, he was conducting a Bible study at his home. And on Sundays, he taught the four and five-year-olds in Sunday school. He was also captain of the football team and president of the student body. And I turned to him as we were driving down the road and I said, Ron, that's fantastic. And as calmly as saying, we've got to turn right at the next intersection, intersection, he turned to me and said, huh, I thought it was my reasonable service. And we great because we're asked to teach one Sunday school class. And we complain because we're always asking for workers at church. I submit to you that our reasonable response to the great grace of God is that we give him back our minds, our bodies, and our service. That is our reasonable response. One of my favorite hymns says, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but lost, poor contempt on all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, shall have my heart, my life, my all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of your Son. It's the basis on which we experience the forgiveness of sin. Now may our Father, your grace and your mercy permeate our thinking and our will so we're willing to be a living sacrifice for him who gave himself for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.